The Extremis Publishing Podcast is endorsed by Heart 200, Scotland's most exciting road trip. Find out more at heart200.scot. the Extremist Publishing Christmas Podcast. I'm Tom Christie, and it's my pleasure to be joined today over a mince pie and some mulled wine with Stirling's borough archaeologist, lecturer, research fellow, author, and all-round good egg, Dr Murray Cook. (laughs) Thanks for that, Tom. Remember, you've got a PhD too. (laughs) (laughs) And that PhD may just come in handy today, Murray, because it's on the subject of Scottish literature, and our topic is going to be Scottish traditions of Christmas. Very good. Look forward to this. Now, for those who don't know Murray, he is uh, an expert in archaeology of Scotland and has written widely about Scotland's history. And that's going to be helpful for us today because our topic is going to be the history of Christmas celebrations in Scotland and sometimes further afield. So without further ado, Murray, Christmas, as we know, has long-lying religious foundations because it was initially Christ's Mass. And we know from historical accounts that a lot of Christmas traditions go back some way. We see Romans singing the early Christmas carols, or the earliest precursors of Christmas carols, um, because they had festive hymns around the 4th century. Um, And as early as the 11th century, we also see accounts of people decorating their homes with holly and ivy, um, the holly to signify Christ's crown of thorns, and the ivy to celebrate um, the evergreen nature of the Christian faith, that is to say, everlasting life. But really, it takes us to Tudor times, I think, before we start to see the modern Christmas start to take form. Do you think that's right? Well, yeah, ab- absolutely. Uh, we, we, we should remember the, the main Christian festival is Easter, where, when Christ rises uh, from the grave. But Christianity, as we understand it today, has been... A, very good at adopting and building upon other traditions. So Easter is a pagan festival. Christmas, the 25th, is is the birthday of Mithras, uh, clearly building on Northwest European traditions of needing a bonfire, needing a feast when it's actually cold and dark. So all these things are, are built upon to, to celebrate and actually to carry forward uh, Christ's good news. Now, an interesting thing about Christmas, and historians like Lucy Worsley have have written about this, is that there is a a fairly subtle difference between how the English Tudor court celebrated it and the Scottish court of the same time. We have phenomena like um, mummers, for instance, um, who would have been 
um, probably your neighbours or other people from your community who would come around your house in masks or other kind of disguises um, and wouldn't talk, they would, they would hum, hence the, hence the name. And generally they would try to cheat you in games of chance like dice, um, which doesn't seem to have really caught on in Scotland, whereas other things like the, um, the Lord of Misrule and Christmas Carols are known to both countries. Yes, I mean the, there are there are subtle divisions. Uh, I mean, the um, as all these things, national pride is an issue, and, and actually there is rivalry between Scotland and England. And, and actually, Scotland sits right in the middle for several hundred years. International warfare between France and England. So, I mean, the Lord of Misrule in England. We have the Abbot of Misrule. It's the it's the celebration of the feast of the fools. Um, both countries are Catholic, um, and both drawing upon European traditions. And the royal families are marrying into each other. So you you're going back. David David the first's um, sister is Queen of England. We can say Alexander the the third is married to Edward the first's sister, etc. 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 By the time we hit these kind of Tudor times, of course James the fourth marries Henry VIII's sister and obviously uh, Mary Queen of Scots is Henry VIII's great niece or grand great niece precisely how we do that so there is interconnection between these families they're operating in a European Catholic system uh, everything is, is common but they are choosing differing ways to celebrate things Now the interesting thing about Christmas carols really is that in terms of their, their ultimate tradition um, there were carols for many other holy times of year including Michaelmas and Easter um, it's only that because Christmas carols have survived into modern popular culture that we remember them as being specifically a, a festive season uh, phenomenon but um, famously Henry VIII wrote some Christmas carols of his own um, which have been rediscovered by musical historians are there any similar musical traditions in the Scottish court of the time? Well, there are certainly uh, poetical um, traditions. So James James the First is writing poetry. We know James the the Fourth is is writing poetry. Um, the King's Quair is the most famous of them. Um, I think we really see James the Fourth and James the Fifth as uh, patrons of the arts. Um, James the Sixth is writing poetry and kind of polemical accounts we know against witchcraft and against um, tobacco and smoking so so the, the the kings are meant to be educated individuals at the head of a society they're, they're patrons of the arts and of course when both countries are Catholic um, they are invited the Scots kings are inviting um, the religious orders so obviously James the first invites the Dominicans James the fourth invites the uh, white friars um, and society as a whole is imbued with these things with with a rich um, textual um, diversity with lots of things going on richly decorated buildings richly uh, kind of plays are being patronised, poetry is being patronised. Um, I mean, you can get a feeling for for some of this from some of these works. Um, Dunbar and uh, Sir David Lindsay, for example, write extensively. They're not writing about Christmas. 
the writing about fun and games in the court and actually a celebration of the the kind of power and majesty of an independent kingdom in its last kind of bright kind of explosion of uh, mirth and frivolity. And one other factor that was probably synonymous with the Tudor Christmas was of course their festive finery and one of the things that they enjoyed were uh, mincemeat pies which had been around I think since around the 13th century so it would have been well established by that point but they weren't mincemeat pies as we would recognise them. No, no, um, I, I think they, I mean, our mincemeat pies are, are actually, um, they're still a luxury. Um, all those heavily um, sugared fruits, spices, uh, in, exotic ingredients. I mean, remember getting a, 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 a mandarin in your stocking, which was actually, that was the time of year you were getting them. They were exotic. So the mincemeat uh is meant to be expensive, luxurious um, supplies. That's that's our mincemeat, but of course in the past it was just a heavily, heavily spiced pie with lots of rich ingredients. And, and you end up, of course, with... I mean, it's a feast. So uh, that that's what feasting means. And of course it's a religious feast. So there is a... Um, uh, th- there are um, religious connotations to all of this too. And the spices in the mincemeat pie, of course, meant to signify the frankincense and myrrh that were brought as gifts to the Christ child in the yeah. Nativity. Yes. So fast forwarding a, a century or so, and Oliver Cromwell is on the march and he's cancelling Christmas, much to the horror of anybody who enjoyed a bit of bacchanalian fun and frolics. There is, there is yes, and indeed, and, and and of course, famously, the um, the ban on Christmas is actually um, retained in Scotland, and indeed, uh, my father um, remembers Christmas being a, a holiday for children. Um, men in his family went to work on Christmas Day. He worked on Christmas Day as a um, as an apprentice, but actually, this kind of um, dour. Um, suppression of joy w- was common to the Presbyterian Church um, and, and certainly that first gasp of the Reformation in 1560 um, you can find references to ministers almost joyfully banning things um, dancing on the Sabbath pipes and fiddles at weddings um, even as late as 1699 in Stirling um, someone got into trouble for gardening on a Sunday you know, not properly observing and, and people that were in the Western Isles in the 80s or very, very early 90s at the, at the, and earlier will remember um, not being allowed to play football in the park and, and swings being chained up. Um, uh, actually, th- this was about observing the Lord's Day. It's quite a contrast to what was going on before. You know, the, the, um, I think I told you about the Abbot of Misrule and, and uh, one incident during James V's reign uh, a series of hijinks culminated in the cow of the park keeper's wife being shot by the king. Um, whether the, if the cow survived, I don't know, or if there was compensation paid, I don't know. But th- there is a contrast there. There is a considerable contrast, even with the dour 17th century and the Victorian Christmas that we kind of have adopted, uh, a la um, Dickens. And that kind of um, Presbyterian sobriety 
uh, has lived on. I mean, there, there are so many interesting stories. The, the famous one, of course, being the, the woman who always took the swing out of her budgie's cage on Christmas Day <laughs> so that it, it couldn't enjoy itself and couldn't have a bit of fun. But yet, Christmas Day wasn't a bank holiday in Scotland or recognised as such until the 1950s. And a lot of people outside of Scotland don't realise even Boxing Day uh, didn't become a bank holiday until 1974. Yes, I, I mean, for us, uh, I, I, to a certain extent, still to this day, Hugman A is the um, the bigger and the more impressive holiday. Um, and certainly I remember my mum and dad and grandparents talking about literally two days of partying, that they would go from friend to friend to friend to friend, and they would actually, you know, their house was abandoned for two days. No one was going to come back. And then all the things that accompanied that, redecorating, uh, ahead of uh, ahead of the clock, the various traditions, the tatty, the, the lump of coal. This also, uh, it had to be said, suited the military and the authorities, especially during World War Two, because the Scots didn't didn't want Christmas Day off, but the English did, and this made the management of troops a bit easier um, during the war period. Um, you always had someone fighting. So then we come to the Regency period. And I was surprised, as I'm sure many others have been, to discover that it wasn't Prince Albert who originally introduced the Christmas tree to the United Kingdom, but actually Queen Charlotte, who was the wife of George III. And the Christmas tree goes back to, I imagine, the 16th century, um, where it was really a Lutheran tradition. Um, And uh, I think that's when we first see trees being brought into homes, um, candles being hung from their boughs, Um, but it it takes us until the Victorian period and Prince Albert really to to see that tradition take root. Yes, I mean, you've got to remember um, Queen Charlotte was was unpopular of course, Um, and and there was quite a scandal. Um, And and then during this Victorian period we end up with this kind of culmination of everything Victoria as the stereotypical, the idealised mother, the idealised family, uh, drawing upon German traditions, and then of course Dickens, A Christmas Carol. Uh, all these things actually make uh, a, a kind of a marketing dream, and uh, th- there's, there's simply a, a, a snowballing of effect. And, and we, you know, Coca-Cola plays some kind of role within all of that. The, the red and the white for Santa. Um, uh, it just becomes a juggernaut, um, ending up with what we recognise today. Yeah, and it's interesting you mention Dickens because I mean he has been popularised in recent years as being the, the man who essentially invented the modern Christmas because he, he brought so much of it into his writing um, and into into pop culture, uh, largely because of um, things like, for instance, Christmas cards um, invented by Sir Henry Cole around the same time as a Christmas Carol was emerging. Yes, um, I mean one of the things about the Christmas cards is um, there's actually a famous one from Stirling um, which shows a scene of the uh, Old Town Cemetery in the middle of winter and it's <laughs> they, they just can't bring themselves to, to kind of abandon the idea that this is a religious holiday, that there is something sober about it. I, I mean the card is a cemetery and, and one almost feels it saying, kind of wish you were here. Um, but it's uh, yeah they just just can't escape what what should be happening 
Another thing which is interesting is that um, after Dickens and Queen Victoria, um, we see really in the 19th century, certainly the mid to late 19th century, um, culinary traditions starting to emerge with uh, turkey and with figgy pudding. But Scotland has its own festive tradition uh, in the form of the bannock cake. Yes, um, I, I, I do remember, I mean I've eaten them. But it was something that had escaped me. I, I, I think possibly because I, I'm not entirely certain I like them. <laughs> <laughs> but amongst the Christmas crackers and the uh, you know the traditional Christmas carolers that we start to see in the late Victorian period, it's amazing to consider just how many of these traditions have survived in the modern day. I mean, we consider things like, for instance, the the traditional Christmas colours of red and green and gold, um, symbolising Christ's blood shed at the crucifixion the green of the uh, everlasting life and the gold of royalty um, which in turn parallel the uh, the story of the, the Magi. It's interesting isn't it that with nativity plays taking a back seat and with church attendance falling that these traditions have continued? Well they, they are but I think they begin to be almost bereft of, of meaning for many people. They are simply what Christmas is. Um, I mean, to a very large extent, modern society is is created in that kind of, um, I mean, what what some people would call the first genuinely period of globalisation. You know, the the eighteen eighties to immediately prior to World War One, where you know it's possible to communicate with America across you know the the Atlantic cables. Um, you've got foodstuffs coming from all over the place. Britain is the predominant superpower. Um, at this point and and really no one challenges Britain so that idea of British culture and then the writers that popularised that and and, and actually uh, I mean packaged it and as you said Dickens Dickens the the, the best of all but uh, wherever you want to go through that period you've just got um, a, a world dominating message and of course, America, which is you know was to be the next superpower, very much adopted um, British traditions at that point and actually ran with them. So you know we, we can see Christmas, we can see Halloween, um, actually based upon Scottish and Irish traditions, and, and actually to a certain extent English traditions that tends to get overlooked, and they're actually just they've become global uh, global brands, global. Um, events and it's it all starts in that late Victorian Britain. Well staying with Charles Dickens for a moment uh, one tradition which is often forgotten about, certainly outside of the British Isles, um, is the fact that Christmas was a time for ghost stories in England and um, it's something that's been popularised quite recently because the BBC have picked up on this and there have been a few ghost stories in recent years televised but not so much in Scotland, it was more of a Halloween thing here wasn't it? Yes, I mean, um, but, but even even the ghost stories, if you actually go back through, there, there are clearly ghost stories in Scotland, but if you were actually trying to think through them, there's there's a handful of spooky poems in Burns, who are, of course, late 18th century, but the, the great ghost stories are probably uh, Buchan, and of course Buchan is writing after M.R. James, who popularises the Christmas ghost story, and, and actually, uh, you know, par excellence, because uh, of course he was writing them immediately prior to the period to be told to uh, friends and colleagues. So again, 
what are what are becoming British traditions is going worldwide. But I think, as you say, this one this one is an English tradition. <laughs> and no discussion of Christmas in Scotland or anywhere else would be complete without good old Father Christmas. And that's an interesting thing, actually, because we, I imagine most people know the connection between uh, the Christian character of St Nicholas, um, leading through to Sinterklaas, as the Dutch call them, and of course Dutch immigrants to America um, carried that tradition over to Santa Claus, as we know him today. But Father Christmas was a different kind of character. I think, if anything, he was probably closer to Dickens's Ghost of Christmas Present. Yes, certainly uh, that would be my impression. I mean, one of the, I think one of the odd things is actually when you go through early 19th century and, and 18th century Scottish literature, and there is a body of them, and, and I'm obviously touching upon your area here, uh, Tom, but Christmas doesn't loom large in any of the in any of the poetry in any of the accounts um you know i i would struggle to find anything coming anywhere close to a christmas carol let alone a mention of of, of an actual typical scottish christmas um i mean even halloween which you know we're obviously uh sometimes more familiar with that burns's poem halloween actually features nothing that we might recognise as um, as contemporary it doesn't even mention um, uh, turnip lanterns, for example. There, there's more something to do with looking at the roots of a kale stalk to find your future. So within you know, whenever this change took place, and I'm pretty sure it's pretty rapid in around 1850 forward. It, it, it's a dramatic turnabout um, uh, for for our Christmas uh, and, and what it became. Being Scottish and having lived in Scotland most of my life, it seems that Scottish Christmas traditions are quite unusual in the sense that in some ways they're very modern, but they're still harking back to very ancient source material. Yes, I, I mean, I think um, the, the trouble is that I think a lot of these practices are, are fire festivals, um, and, and actually they end up with a focus around uh, Hugmanay and the New Year. So, you know, the, the, the Stonehaven and the Burghead fire festivals, which are, are the most uh, dominant ones. Um, I mean, th these used to take place in Edinburgh as well, uh, balls of fire, um, and actually presumably much more common. And, and equally other things like Beltane um, were being kind of hammered out probably late 18th, early 19th century. So I, I think a lot of these pagan uh, precursors or pagan origins of, or even pre, even Catholic traditions that survived long enough through the, the Protestant period were finally vanishing both in, you know, as the ministers cracked down, but also as, as Scotland became more clearly part of Britain more clearly part of the British Empire and actually a kind of global society uh, and you took some of these things with you but of course they have to survive in the new world the new world in Scotland the new world in, in America the new world in Canada mm. um, and only the kind of the strongest traditions actually carried forward and it's interesting you mentioning these ancient fire traditions because you know here in the local area we have Comrie with their flambeau festival mm. um, always popular uh, around about the new year um, 
But I suppose as well, one other um, benefit of Christmas being a, a truly international festival um, is that it does give us this wonderful opportunity to sample different cultures and to appreciate uh, the products of those cultures. And I think that's why um, European markets have become so popular in about Christmas time here in Stirling and you know further afield. I, uh, absolutely. I mean, if if we are uh, Christianity was probably. Um, one of the world's first, in fact, it is genuinely the world's first kind of uh, global uh, religion. Uh, if you if you look at its origins in the, in the Roman Empire, and today there's obviously a tussle between Hinduism, uh, Christianity, and Islam. Um, but actually, th- those we want to share. I, I think personally, we should be sharing things. Christmas is a good uh, a good period to actually reflect upon what. The world has to offer uh, what unites us rather than what divides us. Well, Murray, in the true spirit of the season, I would like to raise a glass of sherry and wish you and your family a very happy Christmas and a wonderful new year in 2021. Thank you very much, Tom, and the same to you. Murray's book, The Anvil of Scottish History, is available to buy now from all good independent retailers and online booksellers worldwide. And there's still time to get my own book, The Golden Age of Christmas Movies which details really the foundation of the Christmas genre um, in cinema from the 40s and 50s. Both of them are available from Extremist Publishing. Thank you very much for joining us. I hope you too have a wonderful Christmas and I look forward to joining you again in the new year. If you would like to find out more about advertising on the Extremist Publishing Podcast, please visit their website at www.extremistpublishing.com for details.